This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Our time is the age of postmodernity and the clash of epochs, but a new age of humanity is rising. It is evolutiony or the evolutionary epoch that which replaces modernity and postmodernity. Such is the powerful argument of my next guest, W. Julian Korab Koporovich, and we will be discussing his book, Traticus Political. Philosophicus, New Directions for the Future Development of Humankind. Within this major paradigm shift that is underway, many fundamental principles about the world will either have to be deeply questioned or, in many cases, deeply reaffirmed in the cases of virtues that have long been forgotten. The ultimate goal will be the further development of humanity into a more happy society. My guest, W. Julian Korab-Koporovich, is a philosopher and political theorist and is considered one of the most renowned intellectuals in his native Poland. He received his doctorate at the University of Oxford. In the early 1980s, he was a student leader in Poland's Solidarity Movement and was then awarded a scholarship of the Leadership of Development Office of the Presbyterian Church in the United States. He is also the author of five books, including on the history of political philosophy. W. Julian Korab Koparovich, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David, for the invitation. Yes. Uh, so we usually like to begin with uh, asking our guests, like, what is your background and how did you get involved in this project? Well, <laughs> I could start that my background is electronics engineering because this was actually my first degree. Uh, I started as an engineer. I was interested in computers. But at a certain point of my academic uh, studies, I realized that my interests are much broader than of a typical electronics or computer engineer. And then, uh, and then I started to pursue another field of study and this was philosophy, and I did it in Poland initially. And then I was also socially or politically involved. So I had to leave my country at certain point of my life. And I went to Canada and, and to United States. I was supported by the Leadership Development Office of the Presbyterian Church of the United States. And I have initially start, uh, st- uh, studied philosophy at the University of British Columbia and then at the Catholic University of America, and then doctorate at the University of Oxford. This is how I basically completed my academic education. 
And just after completing my doctorate, I went to um, I went to uh, teach, and uh, of course, teaching jobs, especially for young faculty members, are not easy to obtain. So my initial place was actually University Birkent University in Ankara in Turkey, and I found myself not in the department of philosophy, but in the Department of International Relations. And this explains why the focus of, uh, of my research today is political philosophy. I specialize in political philosophy, although early I, I also was engaged, for example, in, in studying Heidegger, and I did my doctoral dissertation at Oxford by working on Heidegger and the pro-Socratic philosophers. But today I would say I am a political philosopher. Now, how did you get involved in this particular uh, book project? Uh... Well, this is not just first book project. Um, in fact, I published two books with Routledge, and the first one is called On the History of Political Philosophy, On the History of Political Philosophy, and this book is quite often used as a textbook for the American students studying political science or uh, international relations. Uh, um, this book begins with Thucydides and ends basically with Locke, with American Federalists. So it covers this area. And um, I spent on this book quite, quite many years. And I would say that the interpretations um, which are in this book are quite philosophical. So this is not just like a textbook. Uh, um, it is more. Those are philosophical interpretations of the major, I would say, thinkers who belong to uh, Western civilization. Um, um, I, I was also quite interested in other civilizations. I actually went five times to India. I, was, I went to Riki, uh, um, Rishikesh, uh, I even uh, I even spent a few months at the Indian ashram, uh, uh, trying to learn to meditate, but also trying to read old books. I learned Sanskrit. Nevertheless, I came to the conclusion that the richness which we find in our works, in our philosophical works uh, that begin uh, in ancient Greece, is good enough for me to be involved with my own culture. This is why, in a sense, Tractatus Politico-Philosophicus, my main work, is mainly related to Western culture, to European culture, although I mentioned some thinkers, like, for example, Al-Farabi, mm, uh, the Arabic thinker, or, um, or, or Confucius, Confucius uh, and Manu from India. Nevertheless, I had quite rich life experiences in many fields. We will spend quite a long time just to um, present those. So I will make it short. After quite many experiences, and I visited in my life about 25 countries, and out of those, in about seven or eight, I taught at universities, I decided our own civilization, Western civilization, is so interesting, so rich, I can be involved 
in writing books about political ideas which are related to our own heritage. And this is basically what Tractatus Politico Philosophicus is. It is a work in political philosophy which is basically based on our heritage. Nevertheless, I do not look into the past, I look into the future. This is why it is called also new directions for the future development of humankind. And I speak about so-called evolutionity. I introduce a new word, which is called evolutionity. And I even suggest that we should now replace the age of postmodernity, because we can say we live now in postmodern age, but by a new age, by a new age, like the new age from California, but perhaps more philosophically developed, namely um, evolutionity. evolutionity. <laughs> now, I noticed that the writing style of the book seems to be based off of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And uh, is this true? And if so, why, why did you choose this particular style of writing for this book? Well, in the introduction, I even mentioned that the book is, in fact, a, a, in part, a response to Tractatus Logico Philosophicus of Ludwig Wittgenstein. I, I try to be always intellectually honest. So if there are any influences or any inspirations, then, of course, I am giving uh, by whom. And certainly, Ludwig Wittgenstein... In partially has inspired my work. Nevertheless, we need to know that Ludwig Wittgenstein himself was largely um, influenced by the works of, of, of Spinoza. Spinoza, um, Spinoza wrote uh, Tractatus Theologicus. He also wrote the Tractatus Theologico Philosophicus. So he actually worked, um, also um, um, wrote books which which had similar title, like the title of my book of or the title of Ludwig Wittgenstein. In addition, I believe Ludwig Wittgenstein is one of the important, most important philosophers of the 20th century, but we are now in 21st century. So in a sense, I wanted to challenge him, not, not, not because I like to challenge anyone, but simply I believe we as humankind went into wrong direction and we have partially went uh, into this wrong direction, uh, partially because of influence of such philosophers, for example, as, like Ludwig Wittgenstein. In my view, Ludwig Wittgenstein has largely contributed to something what I would call what, positivism, but also something what I would call postmodernism. And my book, my book, Tractatus Politico Philosophicus, tries to challenge them both. Uh, I think Positivism, especially as it has been developed in social sciences, as well as postmodernism, as it has been uh, developed uh, in social sciences, are basically wrong directions, wrong directions. And this is why I propose to reverse 
the course of humanity, I propose that we should now should reflect on the way we are going and eventually come to the idea of evolutionity, which is very much related to human evolution. But the way I understand human evolution is very different, of course, from the 19th century way of Darwin, for example. For me, human evolution is primary culture evolution, and it is related to our morals. So this is intellectual and moral um, evolution. And I think, I believe, we very much need this for our progress or even for our survival. Now, how would religion fit into your conception of human evolution that you just touched upon? Well, religion is a very broad concept. It's a very broad concept. And of course, we have many religions and many religious branches. And religions are a, a very powerful element of our culture. But just to quote, just to quote from the Tractatus, the religious religions are true insofar as they morally improve human beings. So insofar as religions morally improve us, which is probably true on the part of large part of, of Christianity, that uh, Christian teachings largely improve us morally. Insofar as, as they improve us morally, they are simply contributing to human progress, to human evolution, because part of our evolution is moral evolution, moral improvement. But of course, they could be fundamentalistic uh, understanding of religions. They, they, they would not really contribute to our moral improvement, who could even improve, uh, lead to um, our moral degradation. And they will not, uh, in such case, fit into the evolution um, idea. So uh, we, we, need to, we need to look at the spiritual aspects of religion. What do they actually do to us? Uh, uh, how they are interpreted? Uh, what is the basic message? Insofar as the basic message is moral, like in Ten Commandments or in, in, in the commandments which we find in Christianity, then religion religions can be a very positive element in our human evolution. Now, you have spoken about your concept of evolution and how it contrasts with modernity and post-modernity. Can you uh, possibly explain a little bit further this real fascinating idea, especially kind of Mm -hmm. maybe uh, just summarize like what you mean by modernity and Mm post-modernity? When we go to universities and when we study usually we are being told that there is something like one Western civilization and it starts somewhere in ancient Greece and then develops through Christian ideas to, to ideas of the Renaissance and so on and so on. And we come up to now, up to today's times. I believe that this picture is more complicated, that there is actually kind of an inner conflict inside of 
Western civilization. And this inner conflict can be described by three words, namely by traditional society, modern society or modernity, and postmodern society or postmodernity. And the conflict is related to the fact that each of those, traditional society, modernity, and postmodernity, is animated by different values. Like, for example, for traditional society, and this is not only related to a European traditional society, but I would say most traditional societies. In most traditional societies, what is important? Being religious, being moral, living traditional life, having a traditional family. So family, religion, morality, and community would be the main values of a traditional society. And then let us look, for example, at writings of Thomas Hobbes or John Locke. What do they do? They introduce new values, especially the value of individualism. And community is no longer so important, but we as individuals become more important. Sovereign state become becomes more important. So those are already different values. And in fact, there is something like modern traditional clash. And then another way of looking at the world develops, which is basically postmodern world, uh, postmodern way, which we have today, namely traditional values, including um, religious values or family values are being challenged. So this kind of a conflict between traditional society, modernity, and postmodernity, I call clash of epochs. It happens within history, but it happens also today because some of, some of, some of us are still devoted to traditional values. Some of us have uh, accepted modern values. Some of us have accepted postmodern values. So this is why there is a clash. And in fact, uh, I would say our times, uh, the character of our times, of our today, is very much related to conflict, unfortunately, um, because of those, of those values, which in a sense are not always compatible with each other. We are living in times of a great conflict. And I believe for a human progress, for human evolution, we need to free ourselves from this conflict. We need to, we need to understand that the basic principle of humankind is actually cooperation. We should base our relationships on cooperation. And this refers to both domestic society, but also to international society, to international nations. I, I don't need to convince anyone, I believe, to see how conflicting international relations we have today. But I believe for us human beings, the key, the key is always what are the ideas, what type of ideas we have, and how do we apply those ideas in practice. The frames in which the ideas are shaped today are simply leading us to extremely conflicting world. And the way to get out of this, the way to 
arrive at human destiny, which I believe is related to our revolution, is simply to subject our ideas to a reflection. And this is basically what I do in the Tractatus. I present a new system of ideas on which I believe a new civilization, a new Western civilization can be built and a better life for the whole humankind. So although parts of my work are perhaps a bit Eurocentric, my gift for humanity is for the whole humanity, not just only for for the Western world. I believe the whole world today needs new ideas and, and the whole world today should be based on the understanding that the basic principle of humankind, of all of us, is cooperation, not conflict. We should move from conflict to cooperation at various levels, and we should organize our societies according to this idea. Now, you mentioned uh, just in the beginning of your latest comment about the kind of conflict, internal conflict within Western civilization. And you kind of note that there's almost like three traditions within the West. That is the classical Christian tradition, Byzantinism and militarism. Can you explain each of these? Let's start with the classical Christian and then go from there. Now, th- th- this is slightly uh, different. Like between Western civilization, we can see as history moves on three different perspectives, like traditional, modern, and postmodern. But we also need to understand that, um, you know, during the history, during the history, uh, Western countries, for example, France or Germany, would not always be influenced by something what can be called really European ideas. So, for example, you know, when we study absolute monarchy, absolute monarchy or the absolute government, which 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 was established in Russia, uh, in the old Russia, or when we look at uh, the um, uh, at the king, kingdom of Prussia, they have sometimes, for example, adopted uh, France some ideas which which can be related to to Byzantic to Byzantic civilization, which is not really Western, which is basically Oriental. And then, if we speak about, for example, old Prussia or or Germany at certain points of history. Uh, of course, this is basically what we probably can understand. There were very strong influences of so-called militarism. Militarism. So Germany was very much influenced by militarism. France, Russia in the past, but maybe it even goes now up to European Union. Some ideas which are not really Western, which are related to Byzantic Oriental civilization, like just to give an example, we may remember from from our schools that initially there was a big big war between ancient Greek states and uh, uh, Persia. And what 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 was the subject of the Persian wars? The, those were already wars of civilization. This was not this. Those were not just wars to protect the independence of the Greek states. This was also 
the fact that Greek states would be ruled much more in the spirit of freedom, but the empire of Persia was basically very much based on absolute rule. So this was also a war of civilization. But of course, Persia and the oriental civilization related to Persia was not a Western civilization. So what I say, between the history of Europe or perhaps the Western world, we have those three main influences. We have the influence of the classical Western civilization, but we have also the influence of militarism and so-called Byzantinism, which is which is very much like uh, the civilization of Byzantium, then Rome, to a large degree, adopted also this civilization. So, um, and of course, we we want always to 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 think as political thinkers, what is the best civilization? What is what is the best civilization from the point of view of human progress, of human evolution? And I would say the classical tradition, the classical tradition, the classical uh, civilization, which is originally Western, European. This civilization, I believe, is the best for our human progress for the future. Of course, it would not be any militaristic civilization or any civilization which is related to Byzantium, to Orient, but... uh, our classical, classical Christian, original European civilization. Now, what is the essence of politics in your view? And you did touch on uh, cooperation being an important part of uh, that, but uh, that's kind of a good portion of your book uh, discusses this. Now, politics, politics, uh, very, very often today we can find this definition in many books which are um, presented as textbooks for political science is is presented as a struggle for power yes so politics defined as a struggle of powers of course the politics which is view which is viewed from the perspective of conflict but again my view is this is not the right direction. This is not the right direction to go, and this is not the right, right way to think. We need to understand that the first principle of humankind is cooperation. So cooperation should replace conflict. At the political level, at the level of politics, this leads us to definition. Politics is the art of governance. The Politics is the art of governance. Now, The art of governance may be related to our society, to our domestic society, but it can also be related to international society. So ultimately, what we should do, what we should do, this this idea is, of course, not new, but it is, again, repeated in my work. We should work at cooperative relationships among states. We should be able to solve international conflicts without wars. This is where we should go. This is where we should go. So politics is the art of proper or good governance, and it applies to both um, international relations and to our domestic affairs. 
Now, what is the relationship between politics and human nature in your philosophical framework? Well, um, the concept of human nature is very often uh, applied in political theory. But usually, human nature is being simplified. Like, for example, so-called political realism very often refers to human nature being, to humans being egoistic. The root of this is actually the ideas of Thomas Hobbes. He very much stressed uh, egoism in human beings. And then, in a sense, his ideas were um, developed by the whole tradition following him. And it goes to political realism. But I believe to describe human beings as egoists or as good ones is a simplification. We as human beings, we have capacity to be either good or bad. We can, we have the capacity to build civilization or to destroy civilization. So we need to understand we are not determined in terms of our goodness or uh, in our being evil. We have capacity to fall, to fall, but we have also capacity to rise. And this is the whole point of building a good politics, namely to create such conditions for human beings so they can move forward, they can develop ethically, morally. And it does not mean that you should disregard the concept of power in politics. Power will always be needed. So this is not that we can free ourselves from military service, from power. But first of all, we need to have a decent goal. And the decent goal is cooperation, is a peaceful world in which we can all develop, in which we can go through the process of human evolution. And this is actually the way to evolutionity. Now, what is the relationship between the state and human society in your viewpoint? Again, you see, classical tradition, classical tradition, and then modernity. Modernity has introduced, we can say Thomas Hobbes again, the idea that the state is something artificial, that initially human beings live in a state of nature, and then because they endanger each other lives, they need to create a state. So state is basically artificial construct. It has to hold uh, absolute power to keep people in peace. Eventually, this can be modified by democracy, but still the power of government is, is all what is important. But in classical tradition, the approach is different. Um, the, uh, the state is a is the organization of society, which means at certain point of our development, we need an organization which provides us with security, with prosperity, and this is a state. So the state is an institution of society. It does not stand against the society. It should really be an an institution which is conductive to a happy society under the condition that it is a good state and we deal with good governance. And again, 
I try to describe in the Tractatus the principles of good governance of a good state and also principles of a happy society. This is how the work ends with seven principles of a happy society. Uh, can you list those uh, seven principles? Uh, probably just briefly describe, uh, explain them for our viewers, yes, um, for listeners. Yes, I, I, I can, I can tell. I already mentioned cooperation, the first principle of humanity, and cooperation, the first principle of, of um, uh, uh, cooperation, is the first principle of humanity, but also of, of. Uh, a happy society, which means we need to organize our society under the principle of cooperation. How I am trying to describe when I describe this principle. Then the second principle is um, that our happy society should, of course, be a just society. And the idea of justice is discussed in a sentence that everyone should be happy, but never at the expense of others. Yes, so it is slightly different definition from many definition of justice we find in many books. So let me just repeat this. Justice, the idea of justice is that everyone should be happy, but never at the expense of others. So this means that in a happy society, there should be no exploitation, no oppression, no discrimination, no enslavement. Then the third principle of a happy society is the virtue of citizens and the wisdom of leaders. So um, the idea of virtue is also very important for our happy society. Today we don't speak very often about virtues, about wisdom. We don't uh, really imply that our political Leaders are wise, they are more perhaps professional, but we don't use the term wisdom with reference to them. And yet it is so important. Without the wise leadership, uh, we made so many mistakes as it is visible in today's politics. So wisdom, virtues, this is the first principle of a happy society. The fourth principle of a happy society is education for knowledge and virtue. Again, the virtue is mentioned here. Um, It means education should be a real education. A real education. Uh, A real education in a sense that we should... um, The purpose of education is to raise an educated and creative individual who is physically and mentally well-developed ready to cooperate with others, and equipped with a number of virtues. So, um, you know, today I think we deal a lot with manipulation, with commercial manipulation. We educate humans to consume or for other for other purposes. We need to have a honest education, which will really provide students with knowledge, and with virtue. And this is fourth principle of a happy society. The first, the fifth, the fifth principle is good laws. Good laws serve the common good and not the particular interests of any pressure groups. Again, lobbying, interest groups are very powerful in today's world, especially in Western nations. Well, they do not always serve 
the common good. So the laws and the legal organization of society should always be related to good laws, and those good laws should serve the common good or the public good of all. And then the sixth principle of a happy society is political knowledge. We should be provided with with reliable political knowledge by the media and not by manipulation or indoctrination. So this is also very important, the content which is provided to us by the media. And the, the, the seventh principle of a happy society is the continuity of generations, which means we need also to understand the traditions, religions, and ancestor memory uphold people in a community. And community is an important issue. Community based on some traditions. So traditions, community is also very important for for, uh, a happy society. Now, uh, getting back to the relationship between state and society, how do nations and civilizations figure into this relationship? Now, um, we learn from each other, which means, of course, Chinese civilization is different from Indian civilization, which is different from Western civilization. But we we learn from each other. So I know that I come from a certain background. I come from Europe. I come from... uh, My education was basically related to my Western tradition. Nevertheless, I mentioned I was also open to other cultures, to other civilizations. I traveled to India. I went to Ashram. I went also to China. I taught at a university in China for a short time just to learn the way they think. And uh, as we learn from each other, this is my hope that as I wrote this Tractatus Politico-Philosophicus, some thinkers from India, some people from, some thinkers from China, or perhaps some thinkers from the Arab world, will look at those ideas and think, can those ideas be adopted to their civilizations? And I must say that Tractatus has already been translated to Bengali. And this was a proposal which was made to me by an Indian scholar. He himself and organized a team and uh, later wrote an introduction. So I introduced already uh, Tractatus partially to India. Of course, in India, they also read English, but there, there are also other languages as well, many languages, about 120 languages in India, but Bengali is one of the most important. And then also Tractatus was translated to Arabic. So this means... Um, my book, although written from this perspective, uh, uh, the book in which I stress the importance of the classical tradition, which I relate to to European heritage, make, makes already some way to be understood by other cultures, by other civilizations. And I would like to share, of course, my book with as many people as possible. I would like to open a debate. There is not yet a debate, like, do we need to end 
postmodernism? Do we need to enter into the uh, times of modern, of postmodern, uh, of of the times of evolutionity? I believe it is necessary for us. You know, as as my background is Poland. You know, Poland has been so much affected by wars. So, in a sense, this is what I learned. Uh, already in my early childhood, the danger, the danger of armed conflict and the consequences. And we have, our, our, again, right now, a war in Europe. The war, uh, I would say, in spite of all those civilizational achievements, technological achievements, we are in such a fragile situation. My book was initially published in 2017. So in a sense, we are not making any progress and um, into, into leading to a more peaceful, better organized and more cooperative world. Uh, world. So I believe what I propose, what I propose uh, should in a sense uh, be received, considered. I can of course be criticized but what I have done, nevertheless, I wrote my book in a good faith that it will help humanity to solve some pro- problems and perhaps to go into the right direction, which I believe today is completely wrong and seen from many perspectives. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, what is the relationship between human nature that you explained earlier and uh, culture? Now, um, culture is a very important, very important concept. And one of my influences was Bronisław Malinowski. He was a very famous uh, anthropologist. And his last work, very important work, which is not very often um, read today, is Freedom and Civilization. And in his view, culture is... Culture is basically our artificial environment, the environment which we create. But at the same time, but at the same time, this environment which we create, the culture, creates us. It introduces certain values. So politicians, and for this wisdom is probably needed, should be conscious, should be conscious of the values, of the ideas they introduce to public life, knowing that everything what we do as humans is culture, is culture. And um, if those ideas which we promote, if those values which we, which we share are not really good for our development, then we should not introduce them. So I would say political life should be more reflective and it should be reflective um, by looking at the culture which we create, at the values which we introduce to society. So um, there is a lot to be done in this aspect. 
Now, how does conflict or even military force operate within this relationship between the state and human society, in your view? Well, conflicts will always occur. This is not that we can remove conflicts. Nevertheless, what we are as human beings, we are, first of all, evolutionary being. We can evolve. We can evolve morally. We can evolve intellectually. Um, And uh, this is not the case that international politics uh, will just remain as it is. And this is why I do not agree with the classical political realism, which basically says, uh, you know, the armed conflict uh, war will never be removed uh, from us. It will always be the case um, that we will be uh, having wars and so on. It really depends on us. It really depends on us. It It depends on our conscious thinking about what we do and why we do this. And um, I think we need to come to this um, to this awareness. This is very important for us, as for human beings, to evolve further, not to stop at this stage where we are right now. Because where we are right now, of course, we can be proud of all those technological achievements. But at the same time, they create for us a great danger because we have a lot of powers, but at the same time, we have not developed um, moral constraints. So we can destroy ourselves very quickly. We cannot really, I would say, evolutionity is very much a need of today, because if if we don't evolve at a moral or ethical level, we can we will not be able also to evolve at scientific and technological level because once we develop such forces of destruction which will be able to annihilate us very quickly then in a sense this will put a stop to our further development but we can still do so much you know if we develop properly, which means we can go to other planets, we can explore the universe. But to do this, of course, we need to have great powers, which should not be turned into destructive powers. And the solution to this problem is, I believe, at the moral level. So we need to undergo moral evolution. And this can only happen if we become conscious of the need to do so. Because if we will not develop this consciousness, if we will still think that the main goals in life, it is to get rich or to get famous or to get powerful, this is not the way to develop for humanity. Of course, we can get rich, we can get famous, we can get powerful, but this should only be a byproduct It should not be the main goal for humankind. Someone who deserves should be famous or even rich or even should have a prominent position in a society, but it should not be goals. We are thinking, I would say, today still in very primitive 
terms and we need to free ourselves from this very primitive way of thinking to a thinking which is self-reflective, which is animated by goodness, which is animated by human evolution. Now, do you have any other thoughts about like the relationship between war and peace that you haven't touched on? Uh... Now, war and peace. War is, of course, the greatest strategy for us. Um, but peace, peace is basically a normal condition in which we should live, in which we should develop. Um, in times of wars, philosophy is silent. Philosophy is silent. We cannot really develop uh, certain areas of our culture at the time of wars. And this is such a waste of human lives, uh, such a waste of talent. Uh, so we need, we need to understand what are the dangers related to wars. We should solve the problems which exist between countries. Um, I believe they can be solved. They can be solved, of course, by wise diplomacy, by a lot of knowledge. It is not easy. But first of all, we need to come to this understanding. Life is not about power. Why Life is about to evolve. Why, why Life is to, about to develop, to develop as an individual, to develop one's own talent, but also to develop as a society or as a humankind. This is a proper way to go, not power. Not power for anyone, for any individual or for any society. This leads us away from real human goals. And of course, um, I would say what I said right now does not contradict any vision which we can also get from any religion. You know, in any religion, all religions, insofar as they offer a spiritual guidance to people, they lead us always to the higher words, not to power, not to conflict, but especially in Christian, in Christian teaching. This is love. So teaching of love, let it be applied but I applied this at the level of a philosophical thinking. Now, you seem to argue more in favor of what's called positive freedom as opposed to negative freedom or the absence of restraint, as you explain in the book. Is this uh, correct? Or, and if so, why do you, uh, do you argue for that? Now, Again, um, an important issue um, for any of us is so-called self-realization. Um, um, self-realization, so in a sense, we all, we all want to be happy, but not happy because of a moment. We simply want to live a self-fulfilling lives. And I define freedom... There are a few definitions in a book, but I define freedom as a possibility of self-realization. Um, I, for example, recognize a talent in myself, and then I want, in a sense, to do something in my life to, fu to fulfill this particular talent or fulfill this particular interest. And of course, 
in such case, the concept of positive freedom is more important, yes, because the uh, concept of negative freedom is only related to the absence of restraint. But here, the, ma- the main idea of freedom is the p- possibility of self-realization. We, we make certain decisions to lead us somewhere. So this is why I stress this, uh, this uh, importance of positive freedom. Now, you make this distinction between solidarity based on the classical tradition that you've been talking about versus that of the what you call the philosophy of the enemy, as proposed by both Karl Marx and Karl Schmitt. Uh, can you actually explain this distinction? This was a very interesting point you made. Um, the Tractatus Political Philosophicus is divided into a few chapters. And one of them is called solidarity. And again, so in, uh, the concept of solidarity is, is based on, on cooperation. So um, um, we, uh, the, again, the philosophy of enemy, the philosophy of enemy it's related to division. We divide humanity, for example, into proletarians and capitalists, friends and enemies, Democrats and non-Democrats, and we promote conflict among them. As I said earlier, Tractatus Political Philosophicus tries to replace conflict by cooperation. Enmity of any form is not really conductive to human life. And it is not even something that is original to our human nature. This is only something what can be learned. So we should not learn to be enemies to one another. We should rather follow our natural tendency to cooperate. And this is philosophy of solidarity, to cooperate on a basis of common interests, of common backgrounds, to uh, uh, to change um, to change um, the situation of enmity into the, bra- the into brotherhood. So this is basically the philosophy of solidarity. I would say, unfortunately, um, different different versions of of the philosophy of enemy are very popular among us. Unfortunately, we don't teach so much the philosophy of solidarity as we teach philosophy of um, enemy, and it has to be changed. If we want to change the course of humankind, we should start to teach how to develop cooperation, how to eventually um, recognize our differences but at the same time to learn to cooperate. Now, what is the importance of the family in terms of building uh, solidarity within societies? You spent a bit of time uh, explaining this in the book. In a traditional society, of course, the notion of family is very important and family is recognized as the first community. Family is important in a sense that this is the first school where we can learn to cooperate. 
we can develop different relationships uh, among us. So, in a sense, traditional family is a learning field for us, in solving different problems. Uh, and also, if we think about our future, you know, there is no future without families, without children. So, um, and Tractatus Political Philosophicus speaks about future. So, from this point of view, family is a very important part of our social life. Now, what is your concept of uh, what you call sophocracy or ennobled democracy? Now, Tractatus Politico Philosophicus is a sophisticated uh, book, in a sense, introduces different concepts at different levels. And again, we, re- we remember from some critical thinking uh, ideas from Marx that uh, there, there is this tendency to move into so-called classless society. So in order to remove conflict, the idea was to remove all social classes to change us into classless society of to a society in which people are all similar to each other. I believe this is a mistake because the problem are not social classes. The problem are not human differences, but the problem is whether they are cooperating or not. Of course, I can. I don't need to explain this, that to run successfully a business, one has to have certain abilities which do not necessarily are those of a simple worker who works at this company. So the business class, the business class, in order to successfully run private businesses, needs to have certain qualities. But then I also speak about so-called nobility class. Uh, Why? Because I stress the importance of virtues in a society. And virtues in a society are are represented not not only, but to some degree primary by nobility. When we understand nobility in its true sense, then nobility is a class in which virtues are represented. And I write, a nation that loses its nobility, goes into decline, experiences internal quarrels, becomes divided, and turns into a passive, lifeless lifeless collection of people who can be easily manipulated and enslaved. Now, we have forgotten, we have forgotten because of our history, we have forgotten probably certain things. We have forgotten about the courage. We have forgotten about um, uh, this, uh, other qualities, which uh, wisdom, we have, we have forgotten about those qualities which we can uh, relate to nobility. It does not mean that historical class of nobility would always represent them. Nevertheless, here you have a work in which different levels of societies of societies are discussed and one of them is nobility 
and the distinguish the distinguish point about nobility is virtue and we need virtue in a society if virtues are replaced by vices if truth is replaced by falsehood if what we should really say to our members of society is replaced by manipulation and if we don't have any knights in a sense to defend ourselves against this if we don't have people who have courage who are wise then in a sense we are going into decline as a society so we need to understand different people different people are needed in a society for it to be a happy society and the proper democracy i called sophocracy or a noble democracy because it is a democracy in which virtue is preserved and in a sense a class of people who are honorable who represent them now can you explain a little further the virtue of nobility that's behind this uh, concept of democracy Now, I speak about the sophocracy or a noble democracy includes also elites. We have also today political elites, but today's political elites do not always represent virtues. Um, sophocracy or a noble democracy, which is in a sense the democracy of the future, if we understand its value, it contains elites or the elite of honor and merit. What does it mean? It means that there are certain people who can serve as an example for others. Why? because of certain qualities. Now, I would like to recall, because perhaps this this can be misunderstood or not understood. I would like to recall something. I would like to recall the speech of Thucydides. Perhaps some, some of you who are listening to me know this very famous speech of Thucydides, which is delivered as narrated by... Thucydides at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. And uh, Thucydides uh, and uh, described as Pericles, the leader of Athens, speaks about the greatness of Athens. And he said, well, look, we have made beautiful buildings. We have developed a good political system, which is democracy. But the most important The most important, and this truly makes us civilized, is that our people are courageous, our people are able to respect the laws, our people are tolerant, our people love beauty, our people are also well-educated and wise, and so on and so on. So Pericles, you can look at the virtues which he, which he um, describes. He believes that virtue, virtues 
as the most important component of a civilized state. Today, this subject is very, very rarely discussed. We speak about our technological achievements. We, we speak about our scientific achievements. We are proud because of our wealth, of our power. But how, how often do we speak about virtues? Now, let us take this example from, from Pericles, from Thucydides, and let us also see what happens to the Athenians who actually lose those virtues a few years later. What happens to them? Uh, how their civilization is in the end destroyed? How do they lose the war against Sparta? So virtues represented by the elite of honor and merit are the key to any prosperous and happy society. Now, what do you mean by political rationalism? Now, political rationalism, political politics in general should be rational. We are, you know, human beings can also, can of course be described by a few words, few sentences. We can say we are social, we are rational. Um, it does not mean that we are always rational, but we have the capacity for rationality. So as a normative political theory, we should say politics should always be rational. We should make rational decisions. We should consider those decisions from ethical point of view, from pragmatic point of view. So not only from pragmatic point of view, but also from ethical. And this is, in a sense, uh, the full understanding of rationality. Uh, Aristotle, who, de who defined rationality, would say rationality makes us into moral human beings. So moral considerations should always be part of our rationality. And political rationalism is an extension of the thinking to international relations. I propose political rationalism as an alternative to, for example, political realism. In a sense, a political rationalism is kind of a more developed political realism, in a sense that um, we need to understand that although in international relations power is so important and we can sometimes indeed deal with indeed deal with situation of the power struggle ultimately our goal for us as human beings for us as individuals but also for international community is to develop is to develop and to develop to evolve to improve our international relations. And this is what political rationalism is. And again, I present seven principles of a political rationalism in my work, at certain point that I describe, which means those are principles, how to organize well international politics. 
Well, this has been a very fascinating and intellectually enriching discussion. Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts that we haven't touched on uh, at all? Well, I can I can mention I can mention two other thinkers who speak about future. You know, my Tractatus Political Philosophicus as a subtitle has this. Uh, Sentence uh, has this qu- uh, clause: new direction for the future development of humankind. So, I think about future development of humankind. I believe among our thinkers, among today's contemporary thinkers, there are at least two quite famous thinkers who think about the future in political terms, and one of them is perhaps less known. He is called Alexander Dugin, and he's a Russian political thinker. And his vision, his vision is basically very traditional. He is against neoliberalism. He is against postmodernism. But he's very, very traditional. He wants to go back to history. So I believe this is not really the right vision of the future to go back. We cannot go back. We cannot go back to tradition. Um, and then, in a sense, I, I mention him because, as a contrast, we can mention another thinker who is perhaps more famous, whose name is Klaus Schwab. Um, he is more famous because um, because he is the president of the World Economic Forum. And of course, when the president of the World Economic Forum writes a book, and he, he wrote already a few books, and recently he wrote the COVID-19, The Great Reset, and then just three months ago, another book, The Great Narrative for a Better Future, when such person who is the head of the World Economic Forum write the books and write about the future, then it is worth to look at what are his ideas. So what are the ideas, in a sense, from the perspective of global leaders? Because we can say Klaus Schwab, who is representing such powerful body as World Economic Forum, he represents to some degree uh, the global leaders. Uh, He represents uh, the most wealthy people in the world, and he represents the most uh, well-known politicians, statesmen. Uh, So what is his vision of the future? And, um, well, when we read his book, not even single time the word God is mentioned. So the word without any religion, the word without any God. And then what is there? Well, humans, humans are turned into robotics, He speaks about acceleration of automatization. He also speaks about increasing social control, highlighting surveillance. Um, He speaks about growing online presence. presence. He speaks about um, the traditional contacts between people should be be or will be with time uh, replaced by contacts online. Well, when we read such book which describes our our future, we start to think why? Why should we, in a sense, deprive ourselves of our humanity? Why should we become, in a sense, part of artificial 
intelligence, in a sense, the role of human beings is diminishing in face of those new technological developments, which are so much praised by Klaus Schwab, and also because he recognizes that the world becomes increasingly, increasingly dangerous, he also stresses the importance of heightened surveillance and other elements of human control. I believe we should not go into this direction. So this is why I have proposed even earlier than the book, which the books which he wrote recently, the vision of humanity, which which present future in which we can really develop as human beings, not as robots. When we still remember that religions are important part of our lives, that they can eventually lead us also to human evolution if we understand them properly as a moral guidance. This is a future which I try to present and I would like to share this vision with with you and hopefully the importance of this vision which I have will be recognized. And we usually like to finish up our interviews by asking our guests, are they working on any current projects at the moment? Well, uh, I just recently wrote an article in which I respond to Klaus Schwab. Uh, and I wrote, and I sent to him my book. Uh, I hopefully he already received it. So hopefully, you know what will what will begin. We should have a great public debate about our hum our our future as humankind. This is very important. I believe today we are too much in a sense, influenced by this high technological thinking. We are not really thinking about who are we. You know, we, we in a sense, lose a self-knowledge of who are we and in which direction we should go. So this is what I, sh- what I want to do. I want to write new articles and perhaps a more simple books which des- describe the way we should eventually go and reflect on different alternatives. And um, I would like that it ends with a great public debate that we can eventually escape from conflicts and start a real work towards peace and cooperation. And we will have to end on that note. Uh, W. Julian Korab Koparovich, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your invitation.